Life isn't about answers, it's about questions. Asking good questions is key to learning. That's a proven fact. And there's no more important question than why Jesus. So get ready as we dive into the conversation together on the next episode of the Why Jesus Podcast. Hello, everyone. All right. Welcome to the Why Jesus Podcast. We got a few hot topics to talk about today. Recently, Trump was interviewed about abortion, so we're going to be talking all about that. Um, and some of our thoughts on abortion, some of our thoughts on his positions. And we'll also then jump into some progressive pastors and ask the question, does America still have a biblical perspective? And we're going to discuss all about that. So stay tuned. We got some hot topics. But first, let's let's talk to everyone here. How is everyone doing? Well. Doing, doing well. well. Doing well. How about you, Arthur? Doing good. Just finished a live stream so it's it's all day live stream today <laughs> i saw that i was like uh, you got me nervous for a second there i was like my word i was like i, I, I told josh i'm like we might have to go live without arthur and that, we, we don't want to do that oh my word yeah it, it, it's uh, interesting because today um i learned that i can stream my discord audio and video into ecamm uh, mm -hmm. and that's just a better way of doing the conversations instead of people like calling in uh, on ecamm so like so we did like an audio thing audio only thing so it's kind of like a phone call so it's just the video of me and then people are just calling in and that seemed to work well and people liked it a lot mm -hmm. and i think josh this is your first time on this podcast right uh i've been on before we talked about um churches to avoid uh, churches that have red flags so yeah i was on with uh ryan and john I'm not sure of the other Okay. I can't remember. Okay. I don't think. Okay. I don't oh, it was think Daryl. I was, it was Daryl. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you were on. You were on before. I. I must. I was not on with you. I should say. I, I don't think we've yeah. been on together. Yeah. No, we this yeah. is a different group, and this is my first yeah. time hosting. So. All right. Anything that goes wrong. This is going to be the best podcast so far. <laughs> it's going to be. Yeah. We're, I'm going to make Jeremy. I'm going to put Jeremy to shame. That's my goal. <laughs> be the best of the best. No. 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 All right. But. <laughs> All right, I pulled up the uh, interview here. Um, I'm gonna. I don't know how NBC. I don't know if their channel's gonna like really flag us for anything. Um, I don't know. I'll play small chunks of it. Hopefully, hopefully nothing bad happens. You might. Um, are you gonna we'll speed see. it up to like 1.25? Uh, I can do that. I can do Try that. Try that. That might help. All right. Yeah. Let me let me do that real fast. Settings. Uh, let's go 1.25. All right, so let's play this real quick um, and hear his thoughts on abortion because that's been trending a little bit recently. But first, I do want to talk about the issue of abortion, which is okay. important to a lot of voters all across the country. Just this week, women in Idaho and Tennessee, I don't know if you saw this, filed suit against their state saying their lives were put at risk after they were denied abortion services because their state's restrictive laws put in place after Roe was overturned. So my question for you, Mr. President, is, how is it acceptable in America that women's lives are at risk, doctors are being forced to turn away patients in need, or risk breaking the law? Ready? Can you pause it there? Long answer. Yeah, I, I can. I hope you have time. Here. 
What are your thoughts? Yeah, just I just her question drives me up the wall. Um, so she says, uh, women in Idaho and Tennessee, how is it expect acceptable that women's lives are at risk? Doctors are being forced to turn away patients in need or risk breaking the law. And I, I just we'll probably get into this a little bit later too, but uh, we have like we'll get obviously with the biblical worldview thing, we just have no self-discipline as people anymore. We want to do what our sinful nature desires instead of um, following what God says, which is ultimately mm-hmm. abstinence. And so it's just sad to me that that's the question that's posed um, mm-hmm. when there is another life in the womb um, that isn't even taken into account with her question. So that's all I had to say on that. And I feel yeah. like, and I feel like um, that argument that consistently, like, you know, women's lives are at risk if they don't have abortion, like, it's a weird argument to me because if if the mother health is actually in danger, that's a com- that isn't called an abortion anymore. Like, that's that's something completely different. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't. Whenever they propose that argument, I'm like, I don't understand. I don't understand that. That's a, that's a completely different category. Of a process. Yeah, I, I, for, for me, it's always like when they speak generally like this, I'm just like, give me a concrete case. So if right. I were Trump, and I don't know how he's going to address this. I haven't seen this video. I, I, <laughs> I don't nice. like, I'll tell you this. I don't like responding to stuff like preset. So I intentionally don't watch stuff. So yeah. it's just like raw, my thinking. There we go. Um, and, and you get whatever it is. My immediate question to her would be, can you give me a concrete case where a woman's life was at risk? Like she was about to die. Mm-hmm. because of her pregnancy and a doctor said sorry the law doesn't let me save your life or it's just stuff we're just throwing out there oh her life was at risk my wife is pregnant right now um and th- this pregnancy is a bit more difficult than the other ones and so you know we just gotta keep an eye on stuff like that but yeah. there's people who get like bedridden and all this stuff what are you qualifying as someone's life being in danger yeah. And it could be that they're like, oh, she can't continue with her career. She was in law school. She got pregnant and now mm-hmm. her life's in danger. Well, now we're just really messing with words here. I want concrete examples because they're emotive stuff. They're emotive questions. And I'm not surprised that this is a question being asked by a woman who's sitting in front of them mm-hmm. because that has a certain kind of drive. So there's all sorts of like political maneuverings and stuff with these questions and the weight that they come across. She's asking a guy, whatever he says, is going to be like, Oh, you misogynist or something like that. <laughs> Just, it's really annoying. It's got a bunch of, it's packed with assumptions. Um, doctors are being forced to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. No doctors are following the law as they yeah. would in any situation. Yeah. Like, you know, the doctors aren't sitting there saying, man, I'm being forced to listen to the law and not do this illegal thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And considering, by the way, like we, we Americans come down quite a bit on European countries for being liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't have abortions in most European countries past 12 weeks. Right. Th- those are very, very liberal countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in our country, prior to this whole overturning kind of situation, there, there were states that were having uh, abortions were legalized uh, to nine months. Partial yeah. birth abortions mm-hmm. were a thing. Yeah. So 
when when the Europeans look at us, we call them liberal and stuff. At times, they would look at us and look at these barbarians. Mm-hmm. And they'd be right in saying that. So before we get on these high horses morally, I mean, when I say we, I mean the liberals. Uh, we need mm-hmm. to we need to check ourselves. But yeah. continue. Let, let, let's see how Trump responds. Because I did listen to a little bit of it. I didn't listen to the full thing, uh, but I think his response is interesting. I'm here for so you have Roe v. Wade. For 52 years, people, including Democrats, wanted it to go back to states so that states could make the right. Roe v. Wade, I I did something that nobody thought was possible, and Roe v. Wade was terminated, was put back to the states. Now, people, pro-lifers, have the right to negotiate for the first time. They had no rights at all. Because the radical people on this are really the people, the Democrats, that say after five months, six months, seven months, eight months, seven months, and even after birth, you're allowed to President, terminate Democrats the baby. Democrats aren't saying that. I just have to, Democrats are not saying that. Of course That's they do. not true. You have a Virginia governor, previous governor, who said- so you can, Yeah, you can pause it there. I mean, there's a lot to go off of that. I'm, I mean, I, before before we even do, I actually do have this video um, I was showing just a little bit. I'm not, I don't know if I'll show the whole thing or not, but I'll show just a little bit of it. Um, here it is. Uh, before we before we jump into just just regarding the fact that Democrats have not been proposing the fact that you know up to birth and all that stuff, there's a, a video showing a bunch of different clips of different Democrats presenting that very idea. I don't. I've always believed, even in the third trimester. I, 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 do you think there should be any limitation on abortions? Uh, no, I do not. Up till now, my understanding is there wasn't a limit on when. In pregnancy, a woman could receive an abortion. Have you set the, any limit? There on are that? no limits. Is there a cutoff for you before that point? No. To me, it's it, it's a reproductive, it's a healthcare decision. It's up to women to make that decision. Where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of that she is about to give a birth. Would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? My bill would allow that. Yes. Virginia's governor says he has no. <laughs> before we that's like three minutes long we're not gonna watch the whole thing yeah but just the just the fact like and i also have listened to a couple of different democrats propose this idea and even in california some of these states um they have been either passed or proposed or stretched out since roe v wade was overturned and stuff so it has definitely been extended in some states and definitely being proposed that it should go up to birth in others even after birth in a, ca- a couple cases yeah, and I, w- I would say his his response, for sure, Ro- Roe v. Wade being overturned and going back to the states is a gr- is an awesome thing. Um, obviously, we celebrated that when it happened. Um, but and then her answer, you just refuted completely. No one's saying that. No, that's not a Democrat position when it clearly mm-hmm. is. Um, <laughs> it's just hilarious but, to me that she would say that. Like, yeah. what's the party platform? Like, you can literally go to the Democrats website the dnc website and see what their platform on abortion is mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. when he's saying democrats said this there could there, there have been i should say i don't know if there currently are there have been pro-life democrats yeah right but those are people who are stepping away from their party's platform mm-hmm. and taking a position so if you say democrats say this and somebody says no all you need to do is go to the dnc website and see what the platform is and as far as I know, the platform is, no, we, we're fine with abortion. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the most part, the, the vast majority of the Democrats, that at least are most popular in media, are all pro-choice, especially up till even later terms. Like, And oftentimes, and oftentimes when they're pressed on should there be a limit, 
more times than not, they, they, they try to avoid putting a number on it because they want to stay politically viable in case the tides change. Mm-hmm. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, let's, let's keep going. Termination. And if you want, you will kill that baby. The baby is now born. Democrats writ large are not talking about that. Only 1% of late-term abortions happen in always in okay. the state. They of the are crisis. the radical people okay. because nobody wants to see abortion is- after five months and six months and seven months. And now, by, it's going by to the way, people that, that 1% she just gave. Look. So she, she just said 1% of abortions happen late term. That's yeah. still six to 9,000, 6,000 to 9,000 babies that are being aborted late term. She, she tries to say it's 1% to make it a lower number. Yeah, yeah. But let, let's just, low, let, but let's just rephrase this. Let's just rephrase it, right? Yeah. Imagine, imagine we're having a conversation about anything else other than abortion. Say it's slavery. Mm-hmm. Okay, you go. Oh, the Democrats party uh, platform or the Democrats are saying we should enslave people X, Y, and Z, right? <laughs> and then the person in front of you says, "But, but, but, Mr. President, it's only one percent of <laughs> right." And it's like, yeah, you still realize there's people in slavery. <laughs> like, that's not an argument. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. It. it, it... Yeah, it's one of those things where, yeah, just like just because it might be, even if it's a small portion now, if we would give them the credit of the doubt that it is a small portion, um, the the problem is that small portion exists. Like when you have, if you would have someone advocating for outright murder of babies, uh, outright on your platform, even if it was a couple people, and you don't condemn them as a party, what what does that tell you? What does that talk? What does what does that say about your position on right. life? Well, one of the things I would also say is, why is it 1%? Right? It, it's not 1% because nobody's fighting against this stuff. Maybe it's 1% because there's actually good opposition against these things mm-hmm. from, let's just say, Republicans. Um, and that's why the numbers are lower, that if you just allowed it to be the way it is, that it would be much higher than that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No doubt. So this is not a real conversation. That's a, it, it, it. These these sorts of con- even Trump, right? Like, um, like look what I did. Yeah. <laughs> like I did something nobody else could do in the history of you no. know the world. It, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's this combating of like I'm better than this and I did this and you didn't. You're nasty. You're whatever misogynist. These aren't real legitimate conversations. These interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you understand, it's pretty much 50-50. It's a 50-50 issue. Amazing. Uh, if you look at the charts, it's been 49-51. It's been like that for many years. It goes both ways. 51, both ways. Ready? I was able to do something which gave at least pro-life people a voice. Now it's going to work out. Now the number of months will be determined. You and you're going to have something question. where everybody comes together. Does it bother you, though, that women say their lives are being put at risk? Do you feel you bear any responsibility? Because as you say, you are responsible. What's going to happen, later. this is an issue that's been going on for a long time, and it's a very polarizing issue. Because of what's been done and because of the fact we brought it back to the states, we're going to have people come together on this issue. They're going to determine the time because nobody wants to see five, six, seven, eight, nine months. Nobody wants to see abortions when you have a baby in the womb, I said with Hillary Clinton, when we had the debate, I made a statement, rip the baby out of the womb in the ninth month. 
you're allowed to do that, and you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Again, no one and, and again, is arguing listen, for that. That's look, not a part of anyone's look, The Democrats that is not true. are able to kill <laughs> the baby not. after birth. Let me talk to you. Nobody wants that. that yeah. Democrats don't want that. So we're going to come together. I want, to, I want to know what you want. Something. I want to know what you're going to do if you're we are going to Would come you together. sign federal legislation there. that would ban abortion at 15 weeks? No, no. Let me just tell you what I do. I'm going to come together with all groups, and we're going to have something that's acceptable. Right now, to my way of thinking, the Democrats are the radicals. Because after he's right about five that. And six months, but but you have to say this after birth, you have New York State and other places that pass legislation where you're allowed to kill the baby after birth. Mr. President, I want to give voters. <laughs> I just so want to stop there. She doesn't yeah. even refute that claim because she knows it's true. Yeah. <laughs> California Look, and just... New York both have that in, in legislation since Roe v. Wade got overturned. Both mm -hmm. of them do. Yeah. Even yeah, so I, I have that. the platform. I, I have the. This is the 2020 Democratic Party platform. Okay, Democrats are Democrats are committed to protecting and advancing reproductive health rights and justice. We believe unequivocally, like the majority of Americans, that every woman should be able to access high quality reproductive healthcare services, including safe and legal abortions. Mm -hmm. We will repeal the Title 10 domestic gag rule. Restore federal funding for Planned Parenthood, which provides vital, preventative, and reproductive health care for millions of people, especially low-income people, and people of color, and LGBTQ plus people, including undeserved areas, whatever that means. So there's no, nothing in here that says, oh, our party platform is for up to 12 weeks or eight, mm -hmm. whatever, 20 weeks and stuff like that. It just leaves it completely open because... Yeah. It is completely open for them. Well, as I said, like, if you put a number out there, you limit your political viability to change with the winds. Like, it's a political maneuver not to set a number. Um, so you can you can change. You can say, well, I never actually said. Correct. It, it's to prevent yourself from getting into a sticky situation if you want to become politically viable. Um, that's what it is. And it's just the, the even the verbiage they use, reproductive health, is just so twisted. It's, I mean... <laughs> reproductive health then if if that's a true statement then wouldn't you be concerned about the baby that's in the womb well that's the same way they use family planning right? yeah. yeah yeah exactly who are going to be weighing in on this election yeah a very clear sense of i think they'll stand i think they're all going to like me i think both sides are going to like me let, let me but let's going to have to happen of course everybody's going to like me i'm the greatest you're going to come up with a number of weeks or months you're going to come up with a number that's going to make people happy because 92% of the Democrats don't want to see abortion after a certain period of time. If a federal ban landed on your desk, if you were real. By the way, can you pause that? You such a that's such a pol politician can. statement. Okay. Yeah. Just let's just break down the logic of it. Like you're saying nothing. But Obama yeah, yeah. was a genius at this. At saying nothing. I think Obama was the greatest when it came to using a bunch of words and saying nothing. Trump just did that. <laughs> I think Obama's like way smarter than Trump, by the way. Um, in, in regards to his maneuvering conversations. Mm -hmm. 92% of Democrats, he said. So he's giving us a number. 92% of Democrats, which I have no idea where he got that number from, are for not having abortions after a certain amount of months. Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. A certain amount of months, like nine months, two months, three months. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're bound to find 92% of Democrats <laughs> saying five months, eight months, one month. It's, it's a meaningless statement, man. Yeah. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. right.
And we got to pay attention to this stuff because this is politicians love doing stuff like this. Oh, yeah. You, like, anyway, let, let's just let's just get to it. <laughs> Ban it 15 weeks. Well, people, people are starting to think of 15 weeks. That seems to be a number that people are talking about right now. Would you sign I, that? I, I, would, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years. Uh, I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Do you support that? You think I, that I think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. But we'll come up with mm. enough. All right. So I'm going to stop that interview there. All right. Let's, 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 let's. By the way, let me tell you just one thing about Trump himself. Um, I don't think Trump cares about this issue. Um, for, for Christians who get caught up on this. Again, I'm a person who voted for Trump. Yeah. Twice. Same. Twice. Um. I don't think Trump cares about this issue. Notice the way he's talking about it. Like, oh, people are talking about 15 weeks. Seems to be a number. People are throwing ground. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll make peace on it. So I'm essentially saying we'll make a compromise. Everybody will be happy. We'll, mm -hmm. And then, I'll, you know, it's mm -hmm. a political point. Yeah. Victory. He's not saying it's wrong. It's murder. It's this. Mm -hmm. that. Like, right. all he cares about is the political kind of maneuverings and conversations that he'll get people to concede on. So... Do you and think, compromise on? Do you think, from a Christian perspective, let, let's okay, let's start pulling in the Christian perspective now. Let, let's sure. start pulling in. We've been analyzing a lot of what he's been saying and stuff, and just kind of picking apart some things from a political standpoint. But let's start. Let's start pulling in a Christian worldview. Uh, what do you think, as a as a Christian, let's just say a Christian politician, what would be the right way to approach this issue? Because my first thought is, yes, I do think if you, within the current state of politics. You should be obviously we're all pro-life. We all wish that abortion was completely illegal and would not be a problem whatsoever. Um, but within politics, you're going to have a large majority, a large majority of people who are pro-choice to a certain extent, whatever that extent is. So from a Christian perspective, how do you navigate a political world that is mostly pro-choice? Um but you, you still want to be able to gain political ground in a way. Like how would you actually go about that from a Christian perspective? It's a great question. I, I don't think like a politician cause I'm a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so obviously you probably, um, so, so just as a pastor, I have to, I have to just say, um, life begins at conception. It's mm -hmm. not only a theological position, um, you know, when, when David says that in sin, did my mother conceive me? Like that's when the person, the human life begins, but also on a biological, um, like in a biological truth is that the human DNA is there at conception. You have the 23 yeah. chromosomes, you have all the code that's going to be in there for that person um, you're gonna have eye color, hair color, male pattern baldness. All of those things are gonna be encoded into that person, um, and and so I think just from a biological and theological issue, as a pastor, that has to be my starting point on this. Mm -hmm. You made a point before that as a politician, you have to get to a line. So hopefully, you can start getting that line closer to zero. Yeah. Um, but but like, yeah, so you, like you, you won't be able to in this current political climate as a pro-life candidate to you won't be able to convince the Democrats and a chunk of Republicans to sign a abortion ban bill. It just won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, but
but uh, you could bargain and stuff so that the number gets lower than it currently is. Like, so that is kind of like where I'm at, where I'm like, I would like, to, if, if Trump would come out and say, hey, I'm pro-life, I wish abortion was completely illegal, I wish it was number zero, but I understand I can't accomplish that, so I would like to at least negotiate with Democrats to get the number lower to a thing that we can at least both agree on to a certain extent. And then maybe down the road, other Republicans can try to make moves to make it lower again. Like, I would be okay with that. But the problem is this whole interview, he doesn't he doesn't ever state that. He doesn't ever really establish that, oh, yeah, I'm actually I, – I, he, he never says he's pro-life. He never says he wishes it was zero. He just – he tries to use this word salad to uh, <laughs> politically position himself. And the politicians don't even ever bring up these arguments, um, even the biological one. They, unfortunately, they don't bring them up, um, mm-hmm. and they don't get at actual truth. They just do what he did and what we've been talking about both sides are just twisting language and words and they're not, they're just beating mm-hmm. around the issue as to if this is a human or not. Um, yeah. And I think also going back to your, your statement about um, from a Christian perspective, why we approach this from a pro-life standpoint, the fact that um, scripture seems to um, again, put value on humans at the start of conception. But even, I would say even beyond that, the reasons, the reasons that motivate most abortions are unbiblical in of themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, oftentimes the reason is I wasn't ready to be a parent, uh, which means that normally they were having sexual encounters before they were married, um, mm-hmm. outside of marriage, or with other partners that weren't their spouse or something. And now they want to have an abortion because, oh, we don't want this kid to expose us. We don't want this kid to become a burden upon us, whatever it may be. But the thing that the, the the sins that led up to that situation, everything could have been avoided if you didn't sleep around. If you didn't, if you weren't having sex, like you would have been protected. If you would have followed the biblical mandate of waiting until marriage. Um, yeah. Not even just the fact that I believe life starts at conception. It's also the fact that the reason ninety eight percent of the time, the reasons why people get abortions is for vanity. Mm-hmm. It's for selfish vanity that's a lot of times and then people will often try to use the emotional arguments of the one to two percent where it's rape or something like that um, which we can talk about as well um, from a christian perspective but for me it's not even just the fact that life starts at conception it's also the fact that the reasons that motivate abortion are mostly driven by sin and pride mm-hmm. and- yeah yeah i totally agree yeah and um for anyone that's watching um, endabortionnow.com. They have a pamphlet, 10 pro-life arguments against abortion. If you want to look at that, they have questions on what about cases of rape? What about cases of incest? What about the life of the mother? So like, if you want a little rundown on what the think, Christian perspective is on that, then you can check that out. I don't know if you have it in, in the description or anything, but I don't have a description yet. I can add all this stuff in the description after yeah. we're done here. Uh, but I think I also, have it here you you mentioned it's end abortion one right yeah the the this are you referring to this right here yeah 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 so yeah this is uh what he's referring to so if anyone's interested you can go check it out i don't think we'll we'll go through all that today i don't know where arthur yeah, wants to sure. go <laughs> he uh, went on a journey <laughs> a refill for his drink or something maybe <laughs> for all the <laughs> audio listeners if his one's supposed to spotify and stuff uh, he just he's just off on his own little world not sure where you went. Um, but yeah, you can check out some of these resources. I'll try to remember to post them in the description below um, for anyone who might be interested. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, 
So, yeah, it, it, to me, it's it's just very it's just very disappointing to see that the number one candidate. Um, the the thing that I think frustrates me the most is just as a Christian, I see a lot of Christians who are really fanatical about Trump, um, think, acting like he's this this stalwart for conservatism, but he's he's really not. Like most of his positions aren't really th- that all that conservative. Mm-hmm. He's more center right than he is anything else. Yeah, yeah. This so. is definitely disappointing as a, as a Christian to hear. You know, him say that a heartbeat bill was a terrible thing and a terrible mistake that DeSantis and Georgia um, have also, you know, put into legislation. So it's super disappointing. And I think if we call out uh, the Democrats for saying that a heartbeat bill is disappointing, then we have to be consistent. We have to say that Trump is disappointing on this issue for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I think. Hey, is, is Arthur back? <laughs> Let's see if he's hopping on. All yep. right. Oh, oh, any moment now. Any moment. <laughs> and he's plugged in. I'm sure you can hear me right now. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So I don't know. Any more? Any more thoughts on the topic of abortion uh, before we would move on to our next topic? Any more thoughts? Maybe Arthur has any thoughts he didn't get to share yet. Sorry about that. I got kids, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, uh, for me, uh, in regards to the question you were asking that I kind of stepped out on, look, I I think the platform a Christian should take is complete eradication of abortion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That should be your platform. Yeah. That you shouldn't like maneuver around it. Oh, people aren't going to vote for me. So I'm going to tell them six weeks. Say, my purpose is to get rid of abortion. If people don't vote for you, then that's the state. Then you don't get involved in government. That's the reality of it. Um, But in government, say things are proposed. I'm not necessarily against the Christians saying, hey, here's a bill that's being proposed that we can support and say, make it less or come up with this bill, heart bill, X, Y, and Z. But you should always be working for getting fully, like getting mm-hmm. abortion fully eradicated. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think it's, you're compromising if there's bills there that you can get support for that just reduces it and gets it closer to complete eradication. Mm-hmm. So there's an ideal and then there's a realistic factor of working In from, you know, working to accomplish these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's people who are going to say, oh man, that's a, that's a compromise in itself. I don't think it is because your platform isn't 20 weeks or 12 weeks. Your com- platform is just completely get rid of abortion. Mm-hmm. And then you're working with whatever you're, you know, you're, you're given and you're dealt with. How long or the process to get to that point doesn't mean you're not actually um, against abortion. Uh, it's just the process of how you get there, basically. Yeah, the thing is that um, I know individuals in certain state legislatures that have um, worked at trying to make abortion illegal in those uh, in those states and stuff, and they've had opposition from Republicans. Yes, and that's yep. heartbreaking, right? Like, oh man, mm-hmm. you guys are too radical. You guys, and because partly they don't want to lose the political clout, they don't want to use those. Indi- they don't want to lose those individuals that are kind of like in between and independence and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, again, for me, like Republican and Christian doesn't equal. 
yeah. to one another and it shouldn't. And that's mm-hmm. just where you stand and you look at your, uh, your Republican friends and you say, yeah. well, as a Christian here, I stand, I can do no other. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. We have a, we have a question in the chat that says, what's an issue that you think Trump cares about? <laughs> so any, any thoughts? Um, I think Trump cares about America. I genuinely yeah. believe that. Um, I think Trump wants America to succeed. Uh, whether his motivation for that is selfish or whatever it may be, I don't. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not going to judge his motivation on that. But even his answer in that question, even his answer in that, well, we'll get people to compromise, we'll get them to come together, and then be able to work mm-hmm. and move on is towards a certain end of like America not being divided and being able to work Mm -hmm. on on these issues together. Um, And maybe as like not a natural born citizen, um, Mm -hmm. as a naturalized citizen of the United States, this is my adopted, adoptive country, adopted, adopted. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But like I posed this question to, when I was in Armenia, I posed this question to random Armenian people about Trump. I just ask them like, hey, what is your opinion about the president of America? And, and, and the number one answer I got from doctors to lawyers to taxi drivers to store clerks, doesn't matter, was it seems like he really cares about his country. Yeah. And people really appreciated that. They liked that he was a guy that cared about his country. Mm-hmm. And he should. The leader of yeah. a country should care about his country. And so I, I think he actually cares about America. Um. Other stuff I'm not very sure about. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think Trump is an opter, uh, opportun, opportunist. Opportunist? Yeah, yeah, I think he's I think he's that. Um, I think he sees a large swath of people that have been undermined for a while. He saw an opportunity, and he's a very good at marketing, so he took advantage of it. Because um, I don't think I don't think Trump was for most of his life a stalwart conservative or anything like that. Right. Um, and as you can tell from a lot of his positions, he's really not. Right. Um, it's just that he he saw a lot of people felt neglected, especially like your blue collar man, uh, working man. And you know, I think he I think to a certain extent he does feel bad for that person. Like he does wish things were better for them. Um, but do I think he's like? you know, stays up late at night really thinking about or anything. No, not really. I think he saw an opportunity and he's a, he's a man of um, a more narcissistic (laughs) tendency. But hang on, who does? Like, can you name me someone who had like these pure, amazing motives for becoming (laughs) president? No, 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 no. Did Obama have, uh, uh, did Biden? I mean, the guys run for office like 850 million times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't Biden's think most politicians, I, I think most politicians yeah. suffer from some level of narcissism. I, I sure. just think that's a, a, I think that's just a, comes with the territory of being a politician sometimes. Maybe so. Um, I would just say it's, you know, there's a really good uh, video. I, I think this is on the Phil Donahue show. It's an interview. It's with mm-hmm. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman being the, uh, the libertarian economist. Yeah. And they ask him a question about like capitalism and how capitalism uh, like essentially motivates selfishness or self-interest. And Milton Friedman says, and can you tell me a system where it, where that's not the case? <laughs> yeah. This is what do, do the Russians, uh, this is like in the communist days of Russia. Yeah. He says, he says, do the communists not? 
Like, who doesn't? Do you not? Like, why do you have this job? As a <laughs> and, and, and I th- he's Turn right on. on. Yeah. He's right on. So, I, and I think maybe we should distinguish between something like self-interest or self-want or self-drive where they're not necessarily selfish. You're good at something and so therefore you're going to progress in, in doing that really well or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just not convinced that, like I've wanted to get into politics, uh, mm-hmm. like local politics. And I've been discouraged from doing so by friends who are in politics because they're like, it's a dirty business. You shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then also my wife just is like, no, um, don't do it. But like for me, I know my motivations for that. And partly that's why I've ha- I haven't gotten involved is that my motivations would have been, dude, I, I think I can bring about a certain voice here. I think that there's a maybe conservative Christian voice that's missing. And so I've tried to encourage yeah. other people to do so if I'm not going to do it. But um it's hard. It's hard to to just do stuff generally. I mean, Josh, you're a pastor. You know, imagine if somebody was like, like, do all pastors become pastors out of like the most selfless kind of uh, you know motivation and stuff like that? Yeah, obviously no. Yeah, no. Some of them are very manipulative. I think they start off probably um, with a good motivation, and then maybe they realize how much influence they actually have, and then they can start it start to turn that and get away from the biblical requirements and qualifications of a pastor. So I don't think, I don't think all of them start off with a um, bad intentions, but I do think that power can corrupt and money can corrupt Mm -hmm. and all these other things. Trump's had money for a really long time. I think when um, Dylan talks about the, you know, he, he cares about, the blue collar man I, that that used to be the democrat position i mean so for him to be a classical re- liberal caring about the constitution freedom of speech freedom of religion all those sorts of things um that would make sense that he does i think he does care about the constitution which is america's document or freedom um so i think that goes with with arthur's point as well but yeah, I don't know what his motivations are. I'm not really sure. It could yeah. be that he really does no, care about No one can true, really but... speak into the motivations of a person's yeah. heart. No idea. Um, but you speaking of yeah. speaking of pastors, <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, we, we we have a few clips from that uh, about, you know, with Trump and some of the prosperity gospel preachers like Kenneth Copeland, um, Paula White. Uh, we also have we have a couple other clips of other like woke preachers basically. Um, for this episode, but talking about this idea of abortion and a lot of Republicans, not just Trump, taking a more lesser stance on it, either A, because they're not religious at all and, you know, they don't necessarily have a religious basis for being pro-life or B, for political reasons. Um, we also seem to be seeing within um, politics a lot of people either, either leveraging positions on faulty biblical reasoning, a country that's biblically illiterate and stuff. And I want to kind of start looking at a couple of these clips of um, of preachers and stuff that maybe sort of influences not just on the left but also on the right. And we'll start off with a couple of those um, with President Trump rallies in PA, Kenneth Copeland um, on the ground. We're not going to play this whole video; it's like eight minutes long. But we'll we'll go over to when Kenneth Copeland hops on. So he says he's one of the greatest men in America. Just just I copied his suit. <laughs> There are things, this great state of Pennsylvania, liberty was born here, 
I've been accused of being a Christian nationalist. Our first president. 1789, opened his Bible at 17th chapter of Genesis, where God made covenant with Abraham. And he read that. And he bowed his knee. And he prayed. And he said, you'll be our God. And we'll be your people. Would you call him a Christian nationalist? He was a Christian patriot. Hallelujah. So, by covenant, this nation belongs to God. Therefore, voting is a sacred trust. And <laughs> All right, I'm not going to play this whole video. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's really, it's really, it's, it's eight minutes. And yeah, anyway, he talks pretty slow anyway. But yeah, as you said, I did miss the part where Trump said Kenneth Copeland's a great man oh, yeah. and yeah, all that stuff. He gives Kenneth Copeland a lot of praises. Yeah. I just really want to pull this out just to talk about the fact that these are the type of Christian figures that Trump is aligning himself with. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not really talking as much about like you know, and just these are the people he's aligning himself with. These are the the Christian influence influences he's aligning himself with. And, and when I think of politics. Whenever I see politicians aligning with anyone in the Christian world, it tends to be like woke people or people kind of like Kenneth Copeland um, because they had the biggest platforms. That, that's probably why. Mm -hmm. uh, but how do you think this influences uh, biblical literacy or people's perspective on the Bible when it comes to their perspective on the Bible, the perspective on the country, God and his relationship to people? How do you think this actually plays influence? In well, there, there's two areas here, I think. Number one, biblical literacy. Number two, historical literacy. Mm -hmm. uh, George Washington was not a Christian. He was self-admittedly not a Christian. George Washington would not take communion um, at church because he didn't believe in that. His wife would. He would leave his wife and either send a carriage to go back and get her, or he would go back and get her. I mean, th this is what the data shows. This is the way George Washington was. Uh, he was not an atheist. Uh, but he was more probably of a deist or mm -hmm. some form of kind of like Benjamin of, Franklin. Um, kind of like Ben Franklin, I think. Because Ben Franklin Thomas was Jefferson. a deist, but he definitely was not a Christian. Yeah, I think Thomas Jefferson was probably within that category. Um, well, Jefferson and, has his own Bible. <laughs> well, it's just his Bible because he's taken out all the miracles. Um, <laughs> it's not his Bible; it's God's Bible. He just doesn't like parts of it. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I, I wouldn't like to know what the context of uh, George Washington doing something like that is. Uh, um, number one, if I mean, if I was a pastor, I guess, during uh, that, it, it'd be very interesting to see how pastors would have reacted to George Washington doing something like that. Mm -hmm. Let's just say he was making some kind of a covenant. Like, as a nation, we are now in covenant with God. Somehow coming into the Abrahamic covenant, that'd be like really weird. By the way, that would be the definition of Christian nationalism. <laughs> so uh, that you think we're in covenant with God as uh, Americans. That's yeah. strange. Biblically strange because that covenant is for Abraham. Um, it's and it's and the, the, not even Israel. That's a covenant with Abraham. Mm -hmm. And it produces Israel. And then there's implications within that, but it's different than the Sinai sure. covenant. You got to mm -hmm. look at covenants, I suppose. But 
it, again, that's the biblical literacy side in regards to understanding what covenants are and what Abraham's covenant is and how that applies to us or doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then trying to make that as a, as a national covenant is really weird because it's not even a national covenant when it's being made with Abraham. It's yeah. just, yeah. <laughs> so, and did George, my question would be, did George Washington make the covenant or did, because God makes the covenant yeah. in the scripture. He's the one who says, I'm, I'm going to promise you these things. And I'm, I, that's not in my Bible that, that God made a covenant with George Washington that said it was the same as the Abrahamic covenant, which I, that was a lot of where in the world are you going with this? Um, but, but because of the lack of biblical literacy, people are easily fooled by this stuff. Um, and you have this guy who, you know, you have president Trump who says this is one of the greatest men in our country. Mm -hmm. And obviously Kenneth Copeland has a huge following and he's rich. So people think, Oh, well he's successful as a pastor. So what he says has to be correct. And also he calls himself the prophet of God and all this other stuff. So people are just very easily manipulated in our country, unfortunately, because they don't know their Bibles. They don't know what a covenant is. They don't know who makes the covenants. Um, So as a pastor, it's heartbreaking. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, no, no. As a pastor, it's hard. That's all I was going to say is as as a pastor, it's heartbreaking to see this um, because you want so badly to get the truth to people. So he said 1789, George Washington made a proclamation, correct? Yeah, I think. The only thing I can find online about George Washington making a proclamation in 1789 is actually for Thanksgiving. And it says, I mean, this is by the President of the United States uh, proclamation. Where I'll just read it. It's pretty quick, actually. It's sort of, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of almighty God to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States, a day of public Thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts, the many signal favors of almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Mm-hmm. It goes on to say now, therefore I do recommend a sign Thursday, the 26th day of November next to be devoted by the people of these United States to the service of the greater, great and glorious being. By the way, notice how general he's talking about God, almighty mm-hmm. God, like the creator, generous and glorious being. Uh, he's not like there's doesn't say Jesus here anywhere. Mm-mm. Um, who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, and that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation for the signal of manifold mercies. I mean, nowhere in here is he mentioning Abraham and Genesis 17. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or making covenant with God. It just, that immediately kind of sounded weird to me that mm-hmm. George Washington made covenant with God. <laughs> Do you think the, the, the idea of Christian nationalism is biblical? Like, I know there are some people who really do believe it's biblical. Do you actually think that is biblical? No. Okay. Well, there you go. There you have it, folks. <laughs> I, should, no, I, I, I should explain myself. Look, Armenia is the first Christian nationalist country on the planet. 
if people are like, oh, he can't make this statement. Literally in 301 AD, the king of Armenia declared itself as a Christian nation. And the king became a Christian and got baptized and said, from henceforth, this nation is a Christian nation. Hmm. So if you want to look at Christian nationalism in that sense, as a national identity, Armenia is the first to do it. You're welcome mm. world. But um, <laughs> uh, look, I, I think it was a bad idea. There were Christians in Armenia for 300 years before this happened. They were being persecuted. They were living in caves. They were a persecuted minority. Um, after this happened, there was all sorts of syncretism that came into the picture. Mm. I think the church did things that were right. And I think the church did things that were wrong, but now they had the political power to not be held accountable for the wrong that they did. Oh, wow. I think people came into the church. Um, I think people came into the church for political power instead of service to God. And that perverted the church quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that the church has been a, uh, I'm talking about the, I'm, I'm, I'm a Protestant, but I'm talking about yeah. the historical Armenian church. I'm glad that the church was the reason we have a written language. I mean, that came out of a, a, a monk who developed a written language to translate the Bible into Armenian in, uh, in the mid 400s mm -hmm. in the fifth century. And I'm glad that the church has maintained our cultural identity quite a bit and our linguistic identity and all that stuff amongst Islamic invasions for 1300 years. Um, but it's a bad idea. And I think it's a, and, and why do I think it's a bad idea? Because it's an unbiblical idea. And by that, I mean, it's not in the New Testament. National mm -hmm. covenants are not a thing in the New Testament. Yeah, They are in the Old Testament and they're not for all nations. They're just for one nation. And we see it there and that's it. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason the New Testament is called the New Testament. I mean, Testament means covenant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It is the new covenant and the new covenant goes beyond borders, goes beyond nations. Um, and, and we don't really see a um, template laid forth, let's just say in the new Testament where nations covenant themselves before God. And therefore the descendants of those people who did that are now accountable to God through that covenant. Now I got friends who are Armenian apostolic who would disagree with me to the bone. Um, and that's fine. I, again, I don't see it in the new Testament documents. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It's, it's the new covenant is for the church. It's for, those whom Jesus saves, um, those who come to saving faith in Christ and what he's done for you. So that's the, that is um, the instrument now that God uses to go out and save people and proclaim the gospel, which we're, we're going to get to here in a little bit. But um, I, I think it's super important. Um, what Arthur said is I, I didn't realize. Yeah, you could once you become a Christian nation and then you're getting into the church for power. And it's just that. And so yeah, how that's really good points, how should a country structure themselves in a political way um, that you can have Christian values in the nation, but it doesn't necessarily become this corrupt version of the church. Like how, how do you propose that happens exactly? What is the, uh, <laughs> we're going to solve all well, the world's issues here. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the Constitution is an excellent document because, because the church is able to operate uh, with freedom. So we have freedom of speech. And so that means I can go into um, 
wherever, any, any place that I want to, obviously businesses can kick me out or whatever, but, um, I, I do have freedom of speech. And yeah. so I think it's important. I, 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 um, gave a sermon to our students a couple weeks ago. And in that sermon, I was telling them like, you can go into your school with your Bible and you can say whatever you want to about Jesus. And you should have seen their, their jaws hit the floor because they <laughs> did not realize that. And I'm like, you guys have freedom of speech in this country, which is, which is great. So I do think the constitution is an excellent document for the church to be able to thrive in. The problem is what um, Arthur was saying earlier, even with Ar Armenia, you see this, um, this study that came out in 2021 and 2022, which says that 6% of adults, this is from George Barna, 6% mm. of adults in America have a biblical worldview, 2% have a secular humanism worldview, 1% have a moralistic therapeutic deism worldview, 1% have postmodernism, and here's the big number, 88% have a syncretism worldview where they're just yeah. taking things from a bunch of different religions, a different, a bunch of different worldviews, and they're making it its own religion, if you will, and its own set of ideas instead of sticking to what the scriptures actually say and what they actually mean, and then applying those scriptures to life. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's where the church has not done a good job of sticking with the scriptures. And that's, why we have these these clips of you know prosperity preachers and now these progressive people um i read another article that said that less than two percent of parents with children under the age of 13 have a biblical worldview like this is mm -hmm. not going in a good trajectory mm -hmm. um for the church so what do and, we pastors need, need to do and that's preach the word what, I was say what that, that, that comes back to, to the church then like that's, yeah. that's on the church then to be able to in a nation of free speech it's on the church to take up the boldness to speak publicly yes. um the boldness to go out of their comfort zone to talk to people from different backgrounds different faiths and have conversations um it's on the church then to do those things yeah. um and oh, i mean I what can I jump in there? Uh, uh, look, that's a tough question. It really is because even historically, we've had really solid Christian, like like Calvin, um, had a different view of this, uh, mm -hmm. and the way he, you know, the 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 Puritans had had a very different view of like how they structured their society and what they viewed, kind of. So it's tough, and I think it's been an issue that Christians have struggled with from the beginning. Like, what mm -hmm. what is our connection to the state? And you see this in Augustine's or Augustine's uh, City of God. Um, like, and I think his argument is, Hey, Rome is not the city of God. Like, <laughs> don't get it confused. Um, and by, uh, by his time, it, it, it would have been the case where people would have gotten it confused. I mean, quite a bit of historical facts, uh, are there that maybe it wasn't such a good thing for, um, for Constantine to do what he did and, you know, proclaim Christianity. And now were there good things that came out of it? Hey, yes, obviously. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but there were good things God uses all sorts of stuff for his good and his purposes. Yeah. So that doesn't in any way bother me theologically. In what way should we be involved in, in government? Now I, we have, I have friends that don't think we should be involved in government at all. Mm. Like we're not of Babylon. Stay away. All powers are kind of Babylon in that sense, right? That's in the, in the, kind of the Anabaptist perspective that I Correct. grew up in. 
Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I would just say we are to, if we are given room to live out our Christian walk politically and, and, and clearly we believe our Christian worldview is true and good and beautiful. And if we can use that to influence culture and get rid of the sort of stuff that culture does and societies have done that God doesn't want them to do in the general moral sense, because notice in the old Testament, God will hold nations accountable to certain moral actions mm-hmm. that aren't a part of like his revelation to Israel. So God will say, Oh, I'm going to judge, I'm going to judge Sidon or I'm going to judge Tyre. I'm going to judge the Babylonians mm-hmm. or the Assyrians for the way they're acting this union in humane ways. Mm-hmm. That means they have a sense of how they should act. And so yeah. therefore God's going to judge them. Mm-hmm. And I would say in those senses, Christians should be involved and, and like the abortion issue, I would say, is a part of that conversation. Yeah. yeah. Making church attendance mandatory is what I would be against as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, again, not all, you know, some theonomists maybe and some other folks out there might be like, no, and, you know, we, we should. So if we're given room to be involved in that sense, we should take advantage of it because I think yeah. it's because what we believe is good and true and beautiful, it's going to be for the betterment of our society. And it has been for the betterment of our society. <laughs> yes. Uh, generally speaking. And uh, in regards to kind of trying to politically enforce doctrines, politically enforce, enforce Christian behavior, I think prohibition was an insanely bad idea that mm. was supported by Christians that resulted in, in, in just people realizing how stupid that was. And maybe even people were like, Oh, a good amount of the people that were backing these were Christians. And then now there's this re- rejection of, of Christianity might've hurt us quite a bit in America, but uh, it's a tough thing. I think at times it might mean the case that we don't get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. And in, in certain situations, it might be that we do. Mm-hmm. And this is where we got to be led by the spirit of God and understanding the context of, of our culture and society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm generally inclined that, how you get involved in politics as a Christian depends a lot on the country you're in and the way it's structured and stuff. Cause definitely mm-hmm. within like American politics, if the church was healthy in a sense that a lot of the churches were, had good doctrine and they were actively involved in culture, politics would just over time evolve and change to appeal to the culture, to appeal to the Christian culture, to the Christian values that are permeating and you would start seeing laws change. You would start seeing um, you would you would start seeing the country actually start changing its norms uh, because of that that realization that the culture is now shifting that direction. Uh, but if you have a culture where the church is not doing that um, within American free society, then you're going to see what we're seeing now, where you those things start degrading away in government and in politics and stuff. Um, but if you're in like another country, let's say you're in a country that's not more, that's less democratic, it's a little bit more uh, top-down authoritarian, the way you approach your your relationship to a politics is a lot different. Like within this nation, you can get involved in politics, um, at least locally is pretty easily, federally is obviously pretty tough, um, but locally you can get involved in politics more more easily and actually have an influence because of the, the democracy system. But in an authoritarian structure, you're not going to really get into politics without, you know, in a way, either starting a revolution or kissing up the people. Um, so you're, you, you, you don't really get involved in politics then, but then you're involved in this either underground church or underground culture um, to help spread the gospel and stuff like that. 
So it all, I think it definitely depends on what country you're in and your relationship. With let me share about, let me, let me share about a person that I think is like, does a perfect kind of example maybe of Christians involved in politics. And it goes back to the very beginning of this country. And this is an individual I like and dislike at the same time. Um, and um, so th this is John Jay. Uh, John Jay was, uh, is one of those uh, founding fathers that doesn't get mentioned quite, quite a bit. He was actually the first chief justice of the United States. He's the second governor of New York. Okay, so this guy is, is there. You know, he's a, uh, the way Wikipedia puts it is, was an American statesman, patriot, diplomat, ab ab abolitionist, and is a signatory of the Treaty of Paris, founding father X, Y, and Z. Um, John Jay, because he was an abolitionist, I believe in 1780-something, he abolished slavery in New York because he was a Christian. So think about it. New York had slavery abolished because of this man mm -hmm. in the very, very early stages of this country. Huh. Um, now, that's a local state. That, uh, we were talking about abortion earlier on. That's a local state that abolishes slavery, and the rest of the country is kind of struggling with it as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at it and you go, man, what a guy. <laughs> John Jay thought Catholics should not be allowed to hold office. Oh, wow. Okay, so, <laughs> great guy. <laughs> but he's like so Protestant where he's like, no Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, and again, I don't think I'm wrong on that. If I am, people can correct me. I'm, I'm fine with that. But he's, again... It, Great individuals can have great, correct beliefs and then have some kind of obscure thing there. And, and they're trying to deal with it. They're trying to figure it out. Like theologically, how do I reason with this? And then they can make, um, they can leave a great legacy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we can look at that and say, yeah, he was wrong on this issue. That's weird saying Catholics shouldn't hold office. Right. Yeah. But yeah. to outlaw slavery, to be an abolitionist of that sort, that early on. Very clearly, this is a guy that probably would have loved for the entire United States not to have slavery at the founding of the country. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And if anybody knows about the writing of the, um, the Declaration of Independence, knows that the one we have is the fourth copy because some folks didn't like the way it was worded by Jefferson and Adams uh, in regards to getting rid of slavery from the beginning so there's mm -hmm. two guys from georgia that essentially turned everyone um and that's the compromise you know we'll keep unity and so on and so forth and then they, 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 and it and ended up it ended up leading to a civil war it's <laughs> <laughs> like that was a bad idea should mm -hmm. have told those georgians go get alive right now that's easier for me to say now but um but again then he would have been the person who would have said yes to that and then gone back to new york and then said okay outlawed for us you Georgians do whatever you want to do. We're going to do it this way. Yeah. That's just, that, that, that's the reality of Christians being involved in politics. Sometimes we're going to do really good stuff. Sometimes we're going to mix stuff up and make mistakes. Yeah. But let's, <laughs> we've been having a good conversation here. Now here, I'm trying to find a, you know, I was trying to find a great way to transition here into this next clip. <laughs> but well, here, so, here I'll, It's probably on the East coast. <laughs> So, so here, here's something I want to go back to, and then you can play this. I think it will be a good segue. What, what you said earlier uh, about the church, right? 
and it's the church's responsibility. And if the church um, actually teaches the right doctrines, then it can permeate the culture. And I think I think you're dead on um, right about that. But you have First Timothy four sixteen, where Paul he exhorts Timothy and he says, uh, "Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or on your doctrine." Mm-hmm. Pers- Insist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then in 2 Timothy 4, um, Paul gives this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions mm-hmm. and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And I guess that my question would be, has the church over the last 25 years, 30 years done that or has it appealed to the culture instead of uh, appealing to God's word and holding fast to it. And then I think as a result, we get what you're about to play. That's right. Um, appealing to culture. Let's play the clip. <laughs> and let us confess our faith today in the words of the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the ace quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. So beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen. I mean, if you want to see idolatry. I love that ending. Love is love is love. (laughs) I would just say, uh, by the way, I've seen this before. I should say that. Uh, because I have a video reaction to it uh, oh, nice. on my channel, but um, <laughs> it's just hilarious to me that the the Christian Church has given us some fabulous creeds. Yeah, right. Like mm-hmm. you read the Athanasian Creed, like the the intensity of theological insight and philosophical, yeah. just like prowess, mm-hmm. uh, and like the, the they're so careful with the words they pick and what they're trying to communicate and not to lead into these errors. And then you get this. Yeah, that's supposedly called the creed. How, like, didn't she call it the sparkle creed in the very beginning yeah. yes yeah, it's the i was creed. like yes. my word like of all the names to give something sparkle creed is definitely an interesting choice of a word so if i remember right i, I she I, as far as i think my research is right on this but i think she's a lesbian probably um so <clears throat> so clearly she has personal <laughs> you know yeah ad- agendas here in regards to the way she needs to suit her own passions Mm-hmm. She's reading the Bible. And but like some of the stuff is just like very practically incorrect and false. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus had two dads. What is that? All right, like 
No, no, he didn't. I, Joe, I, don't, Joe, I don't know where she got like, that one He's not a guy that's walking around with in his family where he's got two dads. Right. Right. Like, cause that's what people are going to think. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a very different aspect of being adopted. For example, Joseph and Mary are married. That Joseph is not Jesus biological father. Right. Right? That's biblically sound, but that's very different than calling God your father. And then getting into like very deep theological insight about like, the Trinity and what the second person of the Trinity is and what father means in that context as to what father means in our biological sense. Mm-hmm. And Athanasius wrote about this as a matter of fact, but, uh, but definitely not in this way. Um, and, and so like, it, it's just such a mess yeah. where it's not just even a reflection of our culture. I, I'm, I'm sure this lady has degrees. Like she's gone to seminary somewhere, you, yeah. you know, it is so bad in its articulation. It is so bad in its in, in, in its thought where you kind of sit back and say, at this point, you're just making stuff up. And that's why you should, or that's why you go on to make a comment like, love is love is love. But th- that's like yeah. the most axiological and truism on the, the you know, it's, it's like saying coffee is coffee is coffee. You know, <laughs> you know, postmodernism, you can tell postmodernism almost instantly in a statement or a creed or something when they start defining their terms by the words of the, themselves, like love yeah. is love. Like when they start saying right. axioms like that, you know, instantly it's postmodernism because that's what postmodernism does. It's just, it doesn't define anything. It doesn't give truth. It doesn't establish anything. It's just empty jargon that people then leverage for political gain and for emotional manipulation against others. Whenever they hear something they don't like, um, it's, it's empty. It's meaningless. So like whenever, like the thing that, that just frustrates me the most when I listen to things like that is like love is love is love or whatever. It's like, you're not defining anything. You're not giving anyone substance. You're just giving them a bunch of empty pithy sayings that mean nothing. You can disagree with me on topics of what love should be. You could say that, you know, homosexuality is okay. And we can have a discussion about that. As long as we're actually talking about things that are definitions and actually make sense and have concrete um, positions. I can't argue with someone who's just going to give me a word salad that means nothing. Like, it's it's pointless. I don't. I, that just frustrates it frustrates me the most about these type of creeds and statements. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's just blatant idolatry. Mm-hmm. Like it's in the Old Testament, they would make idols of wood and stone and all these other things. But like, she is literally built her own deity with these words and this deity does not exist it's not a real deity at all and mm-hmm. so she's worshiping an idol that does not exist and if you compare like i have the nicene creed on my wall and i love when i have meetings in here because people will literally look up at it and they'll be reading it and i had one lady in here one time and she was just like she's like that is so beautiful what is that and i was like well this is the nicene creed and you know, it, it was really, it was awesome. And and she was like, wow, she's so beautiful. And she looked it up on her phone. I'm saving this. And because it, it, it encompasses the Trinity, it encompasses the church and, mm-hmm. and what we believe and what the scriptures attest to as to who the father is, who the son is, who the spirit is, and then what the church is supposed to be doing and what we're looking forward to as foreigners and exiles on this earth. We're looking forward to Christ's return and a new heavens and a new earth. And so it's, it's, um, 
it's just baffling to see someone so deceived and then she's deceiving all these other people like looking at this guy in the background who's just reading this along with her mm -hmm. um it's like do you not have a backbone do you not know what truth is it it's just mind-boggling to me and it's also a reflection on it's a reflection on culture to a certain extent it's a reflection on our education system to a certain extent because that's the thing that I think also frustrates me is that someone like this would be considered educated. They would be considered, mm -hmm. you know, an intellectual. Um, it's at least in um, echelons of, you know, college or universities sure. or whatever. They'd be considered an intellectual of some sorts. And it just intrigues me because you look at the intellectuals from as we've been talking about years ago and even ones that I don't fully agree with, they at least sounded intelligent. They at least articulated well. They had they 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 knew what they're saying. They would establish claims and try to defend them, whether or not I agreed with their defenses. Um, right. But nowadays, people establish claims, and that's all they do. They they'll make a claim or a statement, and that's that's where it ends up being at. Um, and that's a reflection on this idea that people have so much knowledge, but no actual intellect or rigor to articulate themselves well or to critically think um they respond to they have knowledge and they respond to emotionalism is that on purpose is that because they don't know better or is that for own personal gain maybe it's a mixture of stuff i don't know but it's a reflection definitely on um, how culture is starting to critically think and actually educate themselves to a certain extent yeah, yeah i would just say like um heretics there's a common misconception in the church that heretics are stupid people um or uneducated or that they didn't know any better that's why they got it wrong or something like that that's just not true when you look mm -hmm. at the historical record sometimes heretics are very educated people and even when we read the new testament we see that a lot of the false teaching and the heretical teachings that are coming they're coming out from the church Right. Mm -hmm. So there's individuals that Paul will rebuke and correct and will at times name them by name um, who've, who've come out of the church. Um, maybe even co-workers in, in the gospel who've gone astray. Mm -hmm. So education well, isn't the good. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like Arius, he was in the church and Athanasius was in the church. Right. And wasn't Arius more popular at the time with his views until they actually discussed those things and ultimately declared the Arian heresy a heresy? Is yeah, that it's, true? It's or? weird, yes, because Arius is um, is a bishop, and um, he's very popular. I mean, Athanasius is exiled from uh, the empire, I think, like twelve times or nine times, something like insane, wow. like that. You know, every every time some kind of a uh, political maneuvering happens, and then Athanasius is this like loudmouth there, calling people to orthodoxy, and then he's like gone, and then he comes back. Mm. Um, but it, it, whenever the Arians would come to kind of pro pro political power, especially uh, when Constantine was uh, was the emperor, Arius would get in trouble. But that's essentially, I mean, Nicaea gets called. But even post Nicaea, Arians are like. Nicaea didn't get rid of Arians. Mm -hmm. It it essentially said that this would be a heresy, right? But they're still around. He still had mm -hmm. a following. Um, they're still around today, but yes, yeah, yeah. correct. I mean, they're called Joel's witnesses. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, the the reality is that 
like I, I, it, we shouldn't be confused to think these things are like education or oh if they if, if, you know only if they read so and so no that's not the case because it's, it's really a case of priority mm-hmm. it's really a case of looking at the bible and letting it be authoritative mm-hmm. and then in my observation i could be wrong here but it's making compromises in areas you shouldn't make compromises in that leads you into a certain direction. Mm-hmm. So when people make compromises in the sense of like, well, Paul could be wrong about this. And then it's like, well, Paul therefore could be wrong about this. Or like, I've heard a lot of LGBTQ kind of supporters when it comes to the biblical conversation. It's like, well, he was so indoctrinated into his kind of patriarchal chauvinistic thinking. That's why he said that stuff. But you know, the Bible's kind of this progressive revelation sort of thing and so therefore Mm -hmm. as culture changes the bible kind of adapts to it and we got to understand and there's some truth in there right there's some truth in the sense of understanding historically um historical context and the Mm -hmm. way cultures have done things Mm -hmm. that we're not necessarily called to replicate but that's where it really comes down to and 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 when you talk to the very educated people on these matters, they'll they'll turn you into knots because mm-hmm. they know their stuff very well, um, mm-hmm. and so we ought to have answers to these to these questions. So let's jump into that conversation. Let's 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 cap off this this podcast with a conversation of actual biblical worldview. How should how should the church be in America? Let's let's focus on America here. Obviously, um, how should the church be uh, presenting itself in the culture? What would be kind of a biblical way to approach culture? What would be kind of a suggestion you would have for the American church? Where do you think the American church is at right now? And how do you think we can get to a point where it's actually biblical? And what does that mean to be biblical? Let's let's talk about that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think the church has, like I said earlier, for the last 30, 30 or more years, they've, um, you know, done surveys in the neighborhoods to see, to see what does the culture around me want. And then they built their sermon series around that instead of actually mm-hmm. just saying, we're going to go through the Bible and I'm going to teach you what the Bible says on a Sunday morning. But also, are you discipling people? Are you having dinner with people? Are you having conversations with people? You know, as pastors and and elders, um, and I think that the church has largely become more of a business where the lead pastor is a CEO and a, and a visionary instead of a pastor who is shepherding the flock that God has given him Mm -hmm. um, in God's church. It's not the pastor's church, it's God's church. And they have abandoned what Paul had told the elders in Acts 20. And in um, was it first or second Peter five, when he's telling him, you need to protect the flock, you need to teach the Mm -hmm. flock, nurture the flock. And they've become buddy-buddy with each other and and their false teachings instead of calling each other out and sharpening each other with the word. So I think that's where the church is today. And and I think a lot of churches, ours included, are making a turn to say, no, we're going to go through the scriptures and we're going to have groups that are focused on the scriptures and not this best-selling author or Mm -hmm. version person or whatever, right? Um, but we're going to go back to the scriptures and we're going to have people read it for themselves and even mm-hmm. challenge me as a pastor. If I say something on a Sunday morning, we ask them, please 
if I say something that does not jive with scripture, please tell me mm -hmm. because I don't want you to believe everything that I'm telling you. So I think that's where the church is at today. And I, yeah, I definitely think, I definitely think, um, obviously where the church is at today is a very broad topic and we won't yeah. be completely right. Um, you have to generalize pretty broadly. I will say at least one big struggle the church has had over the past couple decades is making Christians are becoming too attached to thought leaders. Um, they're becoming too attached to big mainstream thought leaders, whether that be big head pastors, big yeah. YouTubers, um, big anyone. Like they're becoming too attached to mainstream leaders and mainstream thought leaders rather than building up trusted relationships with their local pastor, their local communities, people mm -hmm. who have a local and actual personal investment into their lives. Instead, they watch, you know, they'll watch a big mainstream pastor. Even if the pastor is pretty good, maybe maybe they're a pretty good pastor. I'm not even saying that. But they become so attached to someone who's decentralized from them, someone who's detached from them, someone who doesn't have a personal relationship with them. And they start taking their advice and only their advice, and they don't listen as well to their community. They don't engage with their community. They don't talk right. to their local pastor about their problems and stuff. Um, I think right there, that's a big issue. People need to start moving away from these big, big, big country thought leaders and start moving into more personal relationships with their own pastor and leaders and start building those bonds around a biblical perspective, around um, leaders and communities that are actually saying, we're going to read the Bible and interpret it for what it actually says. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need, to, we need to start moving in that direction or community oriented. Yeah, definitely a celebrity culture in America mm -hmm. where, I mean, if you're a pastor and you're a really good orator and you could have really solid doctrine, I mean, some people, they have online church now, and that you're now their online pastor, which is very sad. And they're not doing the work. I put it in the chat, but people aren't doing the work for themselves of just reading the mm -hmm. Bible and even mm -hmm. checking exactly. their, their local pastor to say, hey, you said this, but the Bible says this. Did you mean to say that? And, and having that person actually sharpen the pastor because... He needs, mm. he needs sharpened just as much as anyone mm. else because we're human and we make mistakes. So, and, and maybe it's a little bit harsh of me, but I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of like 365 day devotionals that give you like a couple verses and then like yeah. their no, own like paragraph of text and then a prayer at the bottom. I hate those. I don't Good. like those. I'm not saying it's completely sinful or anything, or if anyone has one that you're doing it wrong. My problem is that people make it that is their devotional. Like right. that is my problem. When people, they'll read two verses from their devotional, read the paragraph, read the prayer. Maybe they'll spend a little bit of time thinking about it, but that's it. Like that's, that is like, oh, I did my devotions today. Mm -hmm. No, you, most of what you did today was just consume other people's thoughts. You took, you took basically baby food. You, you took what someone munched up and crunched up and smushed down and condensed and gave you a little portion for the morning. And you said, that's good enough for you for the rest of your day. No, that's not what your devotional life should look like. Your devotional mm -hmm. life should look like, hey, I'm going to spend, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it has to be a specific amount of time. I'm saying you're going to, I'm going to spend active time with the Lord where I'm going to be reading the text. I'm going to be reading actual chapter in context and actually trying to understand what it means. I'm going to spend time meditating on it, thinking about it. I'm going to spend time praying, writing down my thoughts. Like you're going to, like, I'm going to be actively engaged with the text. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to just sit down for five minutes and consume what, el what someone else has already consumed for me. Um, I think that's a big part of it because part of the Christian walk is having a relationship with God, not having a relationship with a thought leader who tells you what God said. Um, and, and I like, think there's a big difference there. And like anything, it's hard to get started, like working out, right? It's hard to get started. But once you start, you're like, okay, I'm in it. 
I'm going to do this. And I think the same is true for any discipline that you do in life. Mm -hmm. When you start though, and you start writing your thoughts down and praying and reading the context, like it is so fruitful and it's so fulfilling when mm -hmm. you do those things. So like just at the end of your workout, you know, you feel great. Same thing. Same thing is true at the end of your active, like you were saying, active time with God. It just is so fulfilling to your soul and your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, even your body. I think you're even rejuvenated in your body when you do those things as well. So I know Arthur wants to jump in here as, as well. So, um, <clears throat> no, you, you guys are, you guys are doing excellent. Um, I, I think one of the issues is that oh, we have a globalism issue uh, and we have access to everybody issue. Um, this is not something that uh, any other generation has ever dealt with. Because people have traditionally been in local communities. You know, pe people in a lot of places in the world don't travel outside of their villages their entire lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so kind of they're bound by geography because mm -hmm. there's a mountain in front of them and it's hard to get past that mountain or it takes a lot of work. So they stay there. And then if there's a church there, that's their church, their pastors, their pastor, X, Y, and Z. Um, and now because especially in America, we have access to so many people all at once. Um, and we're also connected in a global sense. We, we run, we, we have an issue on our hands. And so this is, I'll go back to one of the statements of the reformation, which is always reforming. We can't forget that, that that is one of the cries of the reformation, that we will always get to a place. It seems to me that the church and the people of God make mistakes and get themselves into trouble where they gotta kind of they have to kind of recollect themselves. Mm -hmm. It happens all across the Old Testament, where the people come and repent because they've gone astray, right? And um, and 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 that's what we need to do, I think, collectively. But mm -hmm. one of the major issues that's missing in the church is actually discipleship. Um, so I'll recommend a book here. Dallas Willard has a book called the great omission. Um, and that's essentially, it's about Jesus's essential teaching on discipleship. Hmm. It's living with people and it's realizing that the, the, it's not just the job of the pastor to disciple people. It is every single one of our jobs to disciple people mm -hmm. because it goes along with the great Protestant proclamation of the priesthood of all believers. Yep. And if it's the priesthood of all believers, then we all have a responsibility to do what Jesus says at the end of the gospel of Matthew, which is not to go and evangelize, but to go and make disciples of all nations. Yep. Um, that is all of our jobs. Uh, I take it seriously. I, I disciple a couple of guys. I've always done it kind of throughout my Christian journey. Two, three guys I'm always in community with. And, you know, and, and then also realizing that it, the, the way our local churches are, or even the way our devotional lives are, is that we will have sometimes where we go, man, I'd really like to like dive deep into that subject and study it and in which you do. And that takes quite a bit of work, right? Mm -hmm. It could be like, I'm, I'm going to go on this crazy like three-month study of the Holy Spirit. You're reading biblical texts. You're reading like three, four books on it, some commentaries. And then you take a break and then you just kind of want scripture to speak to your heart and encourage you. And you might spend the next three months in the book of Psalms. That might not require as rigorous of study, more reflective reading um, and just prayers that come out of it next Y and Z, but it, it takes work. 
the thing that I've realized is I had individuals when I became a Christian at 18 years old, I had individuals that had a high respect for the Bible and that wanted me, they, they brought the Bible in front of me. They discipled me in the sense of like, Hey, back it up by scripture, believe in the scriptures, study the scriptures. But that wasn't told to me. That was really showed to me. Mm-hmm. They, the individuals did this in front of me. They didn't just tell you, they didn't just mm-hmm. tell me, read the Bible. Mm. I saw it in their lives. And so I reflected that. And that's what discipleship really looks like. Um, and so it's like, we tell people be more theological. That's not enough. We have right. to be theological. And those people we're discipling will catch on. Mm-hmm. They will become more theological. Maybe they won't be as theological as you. Um, I, I've been privileged enough to go to Bible college and seminary. And I, I realize not everyone in my church is going to do that, nor are they called to do that by God. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But there's, they should still be knowledgeable enough on, on some of the really important stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, that's what discipleship looks like. And we have to really go back to that and focus on that. And, and instead of sitting there and complaining about this church is mega this and that church is has yeah. small machines and doing this, like, dude, just disciple people. And it's good when being discipled or if you're being discipled or if you're discipling others or whatever, but either way, it's good for Christians to actually be willing to be challenged, like accept the challenge of being discipled by someone who, like, for instance, as you're saying, not everyone will be able to go to Bible college and be as theological, but they can. It's good for Christians who may not be as theological to look at someone who is and be like, you know what? That's a good example of something I would like to get to a certain point. Like I would like to at least approach closer to that. I might not ever get there, but this is an ex- example set for me that I can, uh, I have a relationship with. Like someone has a relationship with you, Arthur, they can, they can at least look to you for advice and help. Like how can I, how can I grow in this area? Um, allowing themselves to be challenged by other believers. I mean, we even see this sort of thing within the Bible where you have Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ and stuff like that. And you start seeing people saying, Hey, I'm going to send an example for you as an apostle, as a as a church leader, um, whatever. I'm going to be sending an example for you. Come to me with questions and stuff. Um, I'm going to help you with your relationship with God and things. Not making themselves a centerpiece. I'm not saying they're making themselves the idol here, but rather they're helping um, helping grow the church so that they can actually grow closer to God um, and stuff like that. So that's definitely something that Christians should allow themselves to be challenged by other believers when they fall short in certain areas and they see others are doing well in those areas because um i mean as we can all admit we are we're all strong in certain areas and we're all weak in certain areas there's areas we can grow in all areas because we're not perfect or we're still humans but there are some areas we're stronger than others and we become you know leaders or you know you know people look up to that maybe but there's other areas where we're weak where we just we need to look up to others we need to help uh, ask others for a lot of advice like how do i can grow in this area um so we all we all need to be challenged um, so I would add to that, by the way, um, a little kind of caveat. We are we are also called to be very practically involved um, in in the needs of those around us, starting mm-hmm. at the, starting with the household of faith. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about stuff we believe, right? Because you can have individuals who, who believe all the right stuff and live in all the wrong ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we can detach ourselves in very weird ways from beliefs to actions. The Bible calls us to both. And I think one of the things that we've we've failed at, maybe as a church, um, it's like, why are we letting like ultra-liberal people be be the ones that are known to care about the needs of others? That yeah. is our fault. We ought to be mm-hmm. there 
involved in the trenches and caring for the needs of people. Yeah. And we ought to be known as the people who are like that, mm-hmm. not them. And again, somebody could respond by saying, well, because they're just accepting and we go in there. Well, just go in there and serve people, man. No strings attached. Mm-hmm. And even if they reject Jesus, you've loved people the way God tells you to love people. I mean, we, we are to love people without any strings attached. Mm-hmm. That's what unconditional love looks like. Last I checked. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you ever, if anyone has ever served at like a homeless shelter or anything like that, a lot of the people there aren't the most tasteful people. They, a lot of times they don't agree with you or nor <laughs> they don't really like your beliefs necessarily. Um, but that doesn't matter. That's not the point. Um, mm-hmm. if I, like I have, I, I went to college with a bunch of liberal friends and I was friends with a bunch of people who were ultra liberal and who I disagreed with um, on a lot of topics. Uh, but we were able to have relationships. We were able to have conversations and we were able to serve each other and help each other with homework or whatever it may be, because it didn't matter at the end of the day. Like at my call, my call is to share the truth, to share the gospel when, when um, the spirit leads and when the, the opportunity presents itself, um, a word fi- uh, fitly spoken is, you know, a blessing or whatever. I forgot how that proper mm-hmm. goes, you know, but uh, there is time. There's a time to have those disagreements and to share the truth. But at the end of the day, we're also meant to serve. We're meant to serve with love and kindness. And we see the early church doing that um, with the Greeks and with the Gentiles and with them. They were, they were serving their communities um, in ways that were so generous and stuff that it caused people to start wondering, like, my word, like, what is it with these Christians? Like, why are they taking in the orphans that no one else wants? Why are they taking in the widows and the uh, the uh, poor? Why are they feeding those who can't help themselves? Um, and to a certain extent, they were even mocked for this because it was seen as weak by some cultures. Like, oh, you're helping the weak. Like, that's weird. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You must be weak. Um, but that's that's how the church grows is through service. And then through that service, sharing the word of God and the gospel of why we do what we do. Yeah, the um, interesting thing is that, like, regardless of where somebody is theologically, th- this is just what we should be doing. Yeah. So if, if somebody is more on the reformed and theologically, you live your life. You present Jesus, the elect are there, they'll come to believe. Mm-hmm. If somebody is not reformed, then you serve people, you love people, you preach the gospel with the hope that they're going to come to know Jesus through the work that you're doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. The work doesn't change, the preaching nope. doesn't change, um, and we're just called to do it scripturally. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that's my issue, uh, that we can sit there and we can have all sorts of discussions theologically. And these are all great and encourage each other sharp, you know, iron sharpens iron and all that stuff. But at one point or another, we sort of say, okay, what are the needs that we have in our communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's strange that I'll go back to my, when I graduated from Bible college, uh, the speaker, I don't remember his talk, but he had a really good quote in there. Um, and, uh, and I remember that and I don't think I'll ever forget that. But he, he said, pray for Darfur go to South central. Um, and his, uh, the, the, what he was trying to get at is a lot of you guys get kind of handicapped by saying, man, what can I go do across seas? What can I do? Like in, in Darfur is the specific example he was giving, but he's like, dude, mm-hmm. you're 20 minutes away from South central. Right. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. but, but you're so concerned about this overseas sort of thing. Those are the real people that have real needs. Right. It's like there's a lot of people in your own community that have a lot of needs that you can meet in various ways. And we have the resources to the American church is the richest church in the history of the world ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And the American church is also extremely gracious to the world. That should be said. 
mm-hmm. more than any other church that's ever existed in the history yeah. of the world. So more money goes are still some of the most uh, highest donors and most charities and stuff. Yeah, more, more money goes out of the American church globally to 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 help the ailments of the world than any other place on this planet. Wow. And that's amazing that God uses American Christians in that way because we're blessed and yeah. we're giving and that's great. Yeah. But let's not forget kind of locally what's going on around us and how we can serve mm-hmm. and, um, and, and just be involved in the lives of people around us. Yeah. And, and then I think ultimately we want to see, we want to see people well and we want to see orphans adopted and widows taken care of and all of those sorts of things. But when you, when you see going back to that, that survey or that study, when you see 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview, then we have, we have a soul issue on our hands as well. And we, we, that's where the gospel ultimately comes in. And she says, love is love is love is love. Well, God defines what love is. And it's that God demonstrates his own love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think about, I shared this this morning at um, jujitsu, but it came to me again when you when we were talking about this, the paralytic man, right? He he comes he and his friends lower him in where Jesus is preaching, and Jesus doesn't immediately heal him. He says, "I forgive you of your sins." That mm-hmm. that's the biggest issue. People need to be forgiven of their sins, and that only comes through Jesus. And then the story you know, unfolds where the Pharisees get mad. And who is this that forgives sins? And Jesus asks, well, is it harder to forgive sins or tell this man, get up your, take up your mat and walk. And then he heals the man. So obviously Jesus does care about our bodies as well. That's why Mm -hmm. we're going to have resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. But the biggest problem is getting the gospel to people. And yeah, they may reject it or they may receive it. And, and that's not for me to know. I may just plant a seed and then someone else comes and waters it and then God produces the harvest. I don't know what's going to happen when I tell people the gospel and that's, you know, mm-hmm. that Christ has died for your sins. He offers you eternal life um, and he's risen from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God and he will come again to judge living in the dead. So, so like, are you going to be forgiven or are you going to be condemned? And, and, they stand condemned already. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we we want to help and our church does a lot of great things in the community. We have a lot of people who are fostering kids um, and helping moms who were thinking about aborting their babies and now they're not aborting their babies because we're supporting them as a church and mm-hmm. they, they end up getting saved. And like, obviously that's the ultimate goal, but also their child is saved and we see those little kids running around here now and it's super cool, but, but we are in the business as a church of yes, helping the orphan, helping the widow, but proclaiming Christ and the forgiveness of sins because we want to see people in heaven. Um, ultimately mm-hmm. we want them to, to be reconciled to God. So um, yeah. Cool. I, th- I think it's uh, we're, 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 we've been on here for a while. Let's start uh, wrapping it up. Yeah. I think it would be a great way to wrap it up by having one of us uh, share the actual gospel. Since we've been talking a lot about how America has a skewed perspective on the gospel and stuff like that, um, I think it might be good, just uh, fitting to end with a gospel message. Is anyone, do either of you want to do it or should I do it? I'll do it. All right. But I'm going to do it in a weird way. Okay. Love it. 
Okay, so I'm going to do it, I think, the way Jesus did it. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, part of the reason, I, I don't like this. Um, sometimes we go to gospel, and then we go, Jesus died for your sins. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. But it's beyond that. It's so much greater than that. Yeah. Just that. And that's great stuff, right? That's great news. So, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Um the Gospel of Mark says Jesus came onto the scene. He comes out of the desert after being tempted. And then it says Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, saying, repent and believe. Mm -hmm. And then he, it says the message he was saying, that the kingdom of God is here or is at hand. And so the reality is that the, God's kingdom has invaded our planet. God's kingdom is here. And Jesus is the forerunner to that. God, Jesus brought God's kingdom. Now you might want to ask yourself, what is God's kingdom? Mm -hmm. Well, simply put, God's kingdom is where his rule and authority is. It's where God reigns. It's where he rules. And there's a way for us not only to be forgiven of our sins, but to humble ourselves before God and allow him to reign in our lives. And so that, therefore Jesus makes a comment like, the kingdom of God is within you because individuals have submitted themselves to God. And now they are allowing God to reign and rule in their lives. It's so simple when you think about it, because we need forgiveness because that's a barrier we have with God. And, and God covers that by Jesus' death and his resurrection and his life, right? And then now we are called to be in continual re uh, relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And that relation look, that relationship looks like a father-son or father-daughter relationship um, where God's authority is active in our lives. It's, it's uh, vibrant in our lives and we go to him and we say, Lord, how should I do this? How should I live my life in this particular situation I have? You might be a mechanic. You might be an author. You might be whatever, uh, a YouTuber. Um, I mean, sometimes I go to God and I say, God, I'm thinking about a thumbnail. And I don't think that brings you glory and honor. Um, and, and so therefore, God's rule and reign in my life looks like that I change that thumbnail or that I change that title because it is not honoring to my father. But that's done through this acceptance and submission. And, and maybe repentance is a big word for people. And some people might be not used to this word because it's, it's become a religiously charged word. Simply put, that means to change your mind and change your heart and the direction of your life. Simply put, that means you just say, God, I would prefer you tell me these things. You know better. And I want to humble myself before you. Um, to me, this is kind of the beauty of the gospel. Gospel means good news. I know we, sometimes we talk Christianese, right? It just means good news. I say it's great news. Um, and alongside with that, what comes with that is that we get to have life and we get to have life eternal, meaning mm -hmm. that we get to live with God forever, uh, that we don't live a separated life after we pass away, that we're going to be in God's presence. It's going to be the way God always intended it to be without there being the possibility of death and sin and Satan and X, Y, and Z, everything mm -hmm. that is anti-God, let's put it that way. So there is, there's maybe two promises we can put here. One of them is that we get to live with God here and now in his presence. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but not maybe fully because we have still sin and fallenness and all that stuff. But then we get to do that forever with him. And God's going to reestablish everything. Uh, this is not necessarily just an existence in heaven, but this is what the Bible goes on to say, an existence of a recreated earth. Mm-hmm. And God dwells with his people and we will be called his people and he will be our God, which has always been um, the goal. It's the goal when you see Adam and Eve. And that's just the reality of the Christian message. Mm-hmm. There we go. Amen. Then that is the gospel. <laughs> I think that's the best way to end this episode. So yeah. everyone, thank you for tuning in and listening. And if you really like this podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and do that. What are you waiting for? Uh, leave a like, comment, all that good stuff. And I would do the outro that I think Jeremy normally plays, but I do not have that right now. So I'm just (laughs) going to awkwardly end this by saying thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day, night, or whenever you're tuned in to listen to this. Thank you.